Right, to our passage. Well, there are lots of parables that I like. Uh, I like the parable of the Good Samaritan. I like the parable of the mustard seed. It's a favourite. I love the parable of the wedding feast. I love the parable of the prodigal son. They break the mould. They contain justice. They have hope. They have all sorts of different perspectives and angles. And I could hear them again and again and again. And I do, um, as, as many of you do. But I have to confess, I struggle with this parable. The parable of the talents. Not because of the surface message of wise investment of one's talents. I went to a school where we had a principal who repeated this parable. It was his favourite parable and it was appropriate for a bunch of high school kids. And he repeated it and repeated it and repeated it, reminding us not to waste our talents in life but rather to invest and study and advance and do something with our lives. Uh, As a young person, I didn't mind that at all. It made a whole lot of sense, and it still does. So my struggle has not been at all with the obvious takeaway of this parable. As John Kennedy Sr. and all the Hawthorne supporters will lift their heads, John Kennedy Sr. famously said to the Hawthorne players in the 1975 grand final, do something. Just do something. That's what he said. And uh, interestingly, that was the 75 grand final, and they lost that to North Melbourne. Um, But it's one of the most famous grand final speeches. And that's kind of the message of the parable of the talents. Do something with what you've got. Jesus could well be quoted as saying um, the same sort of thing to us. Uh, Don't waste your talents. Do something. If you have five talents, invest them. Do something with them. See them multiply. If you have two, the same. So that's just not my problem. That overriding message of the parable, no problem. And I'm sure like you, it's, it's good advice. Um, and, 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 and many of us try to follow it. I've certainly tried to apply this principle in my life in, in many ways. And I find it personally meaningful and motivation, motiva- motivational. So what's my problem? You're all begging to know. What is it that I find hard? What is it that grates on me? Yet it's in Scripture, so I must come to grips with it. My problem with this parable is the way that God the Father is presented. He's the, if, he, if he is the master figure in this parable, my concern is not about judgment or accountability. It's the character and the nature of the person who's presented in this parable. That's what's described as a very hard master. In fact, more than hard, almost greedy and rule-breaking and taking what's not his, that that master is. Just not a good person, Uh, whereas God is good. So hang with me. Listen to verses 24, 25 that describe the master in the parable. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not gathered scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. What a terrible description of someone. Someone who, um, sows, uh, who harvests, where they haven't, harvests where they haven't sown and gathers where they've not scattered seed. That goes against all I know of God. His nature, his being, his attributes, what is presented throughout the whole of Scripture. The judge, yes, 
Jealous, yes, but greedy, taking the fruit of the labour of others, not good in essence. So let's dive into this passage and let's have a look at it. Now, who's done an exam in their life? A lot of hands going up. And if not formally, you've certainly done it informally. Many of us have done exams at school or after school. But there's all sorts of other exams we have to do for a driver's license or something like that. Most of us have done some sort of examination or test in life, certainly formally, but often informally. There's an ever-present danger in the Christian journey that the Christian, that, that the Christian faith can be regarded as a test, as a series of tests. Some preachers even really regularly emphasise justification by faith alone through grace, but then every other message underneath that seems to emphasise some kind of works, some kind of response where there's just a series of examinations about sin or character or commitment or rules or you name it, and all of a sudden we slip from receiving that incredible gift of justification by faith into something that is actually being earned and and around behaviour or works, and, and it becomes a heavy yoke to carry, too heavy to carry. Grace seems to be mentioned at the entry point, but then it slides into the background somewhere, reinforced by messages about Christian performance in some way. And the faith turns into a series of examinations. Well, that's not grace. But if you look at the message of the life of Jesus, you just see over and over again that the emphasis, that emphasis of some kind of works is completely challenged by Jesus. He said this to Luke, uh, sorry, he said this in Luke uh, chapter 5. didn't say it to Luke. Luke came along later and wrote it. Luke 5, 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call the right... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There is this gift of hope overwhelmingly given to those who are failing their exams in whatever they are, if we're talking about that. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus stated, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, not those who are doing fabulously well and investing all of their talents, five talents and getting five more. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees that he warned so severely, as we've seen in chapter 23 just last month, with those seven woes, remember? Absolutely devastating seven woes for the religious leaders and the teachers in the temple. Were people who were doing all they could to invest their talents into the religious system of the day and their response from Jesus was to be woed. They got seven of them. Chapter 23, you remember, is an entire chapter, a message of judgment on those people who thought they were investing their talents wisely. Yet the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, who would all have failed any examination of their day, were welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Can you see my problem? We can certainly take away from Jesus that the religious rules and examinations of the day were meaningless before God. In fact, as you open up the the parable of of the Good Samaritan, what you see is this situation where um, you have 
three characters. You have a, a, a priest and a Levite who see a man who's beaten up and dying on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And they cross the road and they walk away from him to avoid him. And we all think, that's terrible. And then you have the good Samaritan who comes along and renders assistance and takes him to hospital and looks after him. Well, when you understand the religious system of the day, you understand that the priest and the Levite did the right thing. Because if they touched that man and he died, then they had touched something contaminated and they were unable to perform their duties for God. And what's more important than performing your duties for God if you're a priest or a Levite? So they did the right thing by crossing the road and avoiding rendering assistance. So Jesus tells this story to say that the religious system was broken. If a religious system is causing you not to render assistance to someone who's dying and in the gutter and, and, and broken, then it's wrong. And he makes this great example, like he does with the Samaritan woman in John 4, of taking this good Samaritan. Of course, the Jews hated the Samaritans, but he, of course, decides to provoke them by making the point, by saying, a good Samaritan was the one who rendered assistance. Who is my neighbour? That's the whole point of, of the parable. It's flipping it on its head. Works and examinations and religious system and, and doing what is good and looks right and, and pleases the temple and the, the religious system, if it doesn't also bring about compassion and care and response and love for neighbour, then it's broken. That was Jesus' point. So he woed them seven times in chapter 23. That's really clear. And yet, sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes who would have failed any examination of their day were welcomed into his kingdom of heaven. We can certainly take away from that that the religious rules and examinations are not the way to go. And we can't get caught up with modern equivalents of that as followers of Jesus. Our, our heart must be relationship with God and compassion and love for neighbour driven by those sorts of things. So what's going on here in this parable? And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to have some time to reflect on it with some people around you, or if you're at home, to think about it as well, because I'd like us to come on a journey to think into this parable. One way that people interpret this parable is to say that this was Jesus speaking to, and probably the normal way, is this was Jesus speaking to his disciples about a coming lengthy period when he would be away and that he would eventually return and want to see how they'd invested their talents. And that fits. But there's a caution here in that it could easily slip into a method of works-based activities which makes Jesus the examiner and the faith a series of tests. Can you see the dilemma? That argument doesn't have to go that way, but it easily could and sometimes, maybe even often, does. So another way to understand this, because this is the genius of the parables Jesus told, is he told these stories with these characters, and each of us hear them slightly differently. Each of us identify with different characters. Each of us, in, in the parable of the, uh, the lost son, the prodigal son, the, the lo is, it the, is it the parable of the prodigal son? Is it the parable of the older brother? who behaved terribly to his lost brother? Is it the parable of the loving father? Because each of the characters in these parables help you enter the story and understand the grace and the teaching of God. 
So here's another way that it could be understood, understood as in, in light of Jesus' relationship with the Israelite leaders in the temple. Maybe it's about that. We know that's a dominant issue in Matthew. We know that in this section of Matthew, 20, chapters 23, 24, 25, it's a particularly dominant issue. If it's a story about God and Israel, then the master in the parable might become the Israelite leaders of the temple who harvested where they'd not sown and gathered where they'd not scattered seed. That might fit. That could fit. It certainly fits with Matthew's argument in this part of Matthew. And it's how Luke actually applies this parable of the ten miners in Luke 19. The followers of Jesus could then become the servants who used their talents and produced a good return. Or Israel's religious leaders could be reversed from being the master in the parable to the wicked servant who's thrown out and God returns back to being the master in the parable. But that, of course, also brings back our original problem of the character and nature of God being anything but good and just. The word talent. Modern translations, I noticed, even in the NIV, my, I've got an older Bible which said talent. The more modern versions of the NIV say bags of gold. Interesting. The word talent is, um, is, is a unit of money, a lot of money, actually, a talent was worth about what a labourer would make in 15 years. So I did some maths. The minimum wage at the moment is $31.38 per hour. So if you work 48, weeks for 48 hours a week for 52 weeks for 15 years, $31.38 an hour becomes $667,056 before tax. So it's a substantial amount of money earned over a long period of time. That's the value, a modern equivalent about, of a talent in this parable. The word talent carries also, of course, a sense of skills or abilities. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees have been also given an enormous talent, more than just the minimum wage for 15 years. They had been entrusted with the law of Moses. They'd also been given responsibility for the temple, the sign of God's presence. And they'd been given responsibility as guardians of Israel's story of faith. But Jesus alleged that they'd perhaps buried these things in the ground and when he returned had not multiplied them. Perhaps when he came to the fruitless fig tree in chapter 21 of Matthew, Jesus gives us an insight of his opinion. Remember that? Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves and it was breakfast and he was hungry. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Feels similar, doesn't it? And back in chapter 5, Jesus had accused the, Israel, uh, the Israelite leaders of failing at being salt and light and he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world, he said. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
So he asked his disciples to be salt and light because the system of the day was not. And Jesus also used this same idea with the idea of pruning and cutting in John chapter 15 when he said, I am the vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more pruneful, uh, more pruneful, more fruitful. So there are lots of ways that a parable can be interpreted, and that's part of why Jesus used parables. Parables open ideas. They create characters that we can each identify with. They make his point. In fact, it's, I've heard it said that Jesus... Um, often was asked a whole lot of questions and he often would reply with questions. I think only two or three times he gave definitive answers and I think from my, in my head it's 190 times or something like that that Jesus replies with a question. He throws it back. He leaves it with us. So parables open ideas and create characters that we can identify with. And the parable of the talents is absolutely one of those. So for me, as I read the parable, the emphasis falls on the contrast, for me, between the first two servants and the third. The first two servants invested what they had, whether it was five talents or whether it was two talents, whether it was a little or a lot, and therefore they were entrusted with more. And coming on the previous passages that we've looked at in last weeks, where there was this wisdom emphasis about wisdom and folly, they were wise. And the third character was, was one of folly. The third servant who buried the talent was unwise and therefore didn't just receive a neutral return. He or she received punishment and judgment for not doing anything. And there's certainly something that we and I can take away from that. Absolutely. And I do. So what I'd like to do now is throw it over to you um, if, if you're comfortable. If you're not, feel free to just sit in your seat and relax. We're just going to have a few minutes where with two or three or four people around you, whatever is natural and easy, I'd be interested in you taking some time uh, to discuss... I've put it up the next slide. Thanks, Dylan. The next slide. How do you interpret this parable? And what's the main lesson that you draw out of it? So just relax. There's no right or wrong. I've tried to go out of my way to really make you feel welcome to, re re uh, to chat with the people around you about how you interpret this parable and, and feel free to say, I really don't know either. So feel free to get into, your, uh, get into little groups with people around you and talk about that for a couple of minutes and make sure everyone gets an opportunity to have a say.
Friends, uh, there we go. We'll come back together and I'll hand over to Mike. Let me leave you with one final thought from this parable. An incredible encouragement. There's no criticism in this parable for having a go. There's only encouragement for trying. The criticism is for not trying. So as you go into this week, try. Step out in faith. Have a go. There is only support and encouragement for having a go for God. Thanks, Andrew. We're going to continue the, uh, the theme of...